look back, I think what I got was a village. Uh, I, I got a society, I got a culture um, in which I felt um, I belonged. I had intergenerational connection to people who weren't my blood kin, which I think is really important. I think we've lost that um, as, a, as a culture. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Tim Winton is one of my favourite writers. He's a National Living Treasurer, an Officer of the Order of Australia and a four-time Miles Franklin winner. He's written nearly 30 books in more than 40 years. For many Australian readers, life consists of two states, reading a Tim Winton book or hungrily waiting for the next Tim Winton book. There are days when characters like Fish, Jaxie and Pikelet feel more real to me than some of the real people I've met. And yet while Tim's created some extraordinary characters, his work is grounded in geography. When I walk on a beach in Western Australia, I see it through the pages of a Tim Winton novel. He's Australia's bard, and it's a pleasure to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Tim. Oh, thank you. Now, your parents, Beverly and John, weren't writers. Uh, what got you fascinated about words at an early age? Yeah, that's a good question. It's hard to it's hard to think back that far because it's a long way back now. But um, yeah, we came out of the we came out of the trades classes, I suppose the the uh, uh, white trash uh, settlers, and um, with a, with a dose of you know involuntary tourism as well. You know, we're, part of the family were um, settlers, and others were convicts. But um, and there was not a kind of a, a a long record of education, you know. I think um, I remember my grandmother, um, how passionate uh, my father's mother, how passionate she was about education because she'd been taken out of school um, before puberty. Um, she went into service. She was in an orphanage um, with her brother. Um, just that kind of um, just that kind of Australia of thwarted people, good, good, solid, big-hearted people um, whose dreams were thwarted by um, lack of opportunity, um, class barriers, um, regional barriers. Um, but language, uh, despite all that, language was important. Storytelling was important. Um, uh, there was a great thirst for... Um, Tales tall and untrue, um, but also poetry. And I, I guess I, my father's side of the family particularly were uh, susceptible to storytelling and loved loved reciting poetry. And uh, I can still remember being a very little boy, being up the up the fig tree, um, uh, passing figs down to my grandmother while she uh, she she recited uh, Hiawatha or. Um, or the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Um, so yeah, um, so not not a lot of not a lot of writing done in uh, in in the, in my family. My grandfather was a was a songwriter though, 
and um, and, a, and a musician. And uh, I guess there might have been a little bit of that in, in the genetics. But I think we all had a shared love of stories and being swept away from your circumstance by you know absorbing yourself in a in a book um and also probably especially on my father's side uh you know the the the, the scriptures were really important so the, it was that we grew up hearing the king james bible so the cadences mm-hmm. of the king mm-hmm. james bible were important but i i just remember being a very small boy uh loving being transported uh to other worlds being being able to be another person for a while you know in another time in another with another gender uh in another universe even and um and that that love of being swept into another what i call the the eternal present tense where you are you're in the moment you're in the flow of the story um I wanted to be connected to that for the rest of my life, and I think that's why I became a writer. Because when you're when you're writing um, uh, in the kind of writing that I've done mostly for the past forty odd years, um, the feeling you get as a writer when it's working, that flow state that you go into, mm. is as close as I get to being a reader and being swept off um, by a, by a story or an image or a song. You don't write a lot about God, uh, but the household you grew up in was quite religious. Um, how did that shape you? Is do you do you have a sort of is, is that somewhere where your extraordinary work ethic comes from? What did, what did your religious upbringing give you? Oh, it gave me gave me uh, a lot, probably t- too much to um, explain, and probably too much that I can't even explain to myself, but. Um, Community first, I think, um, gave me, um, you know, I, I grew up in a kind of a fundamentalist um, tradition and although it has many disadvantages, the older I got and the more I saw them and the more barriers they became, despite all that, what when I look back, I think what I got was a village. Uh, I, I got a society, I got a culture uh, in which I felt... Um, I belonged. I had intergenerational connection to people who weren't my blood kin, which I think is really important. I think we've lost that um, as a as a culture, um, as as we've succumbed more and more to being clients and um, uh, consumers, um, and instead of citizens, uh, we've lost connection to people. Um, you know, as our as our Clubs and volunteer you know, organisations have sort of diminished somewhat in our connection to to strangers who are, um, you know, in in another generation. Um, I think that's 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 something I treasure because um, I don't see that my children and their children have that available to them in the same way that I did as a as a child. That you, you know. There was a parish and a parish pump, almost literally, you know, and um, and you had connection to people, um, and at the drop of a hat, um, and when people needed something, they got help. Um, so there's just there was really that um, sense of social connection and cohesion, which I, which I treasure. And there's also just stuff like um, communal singing. Do you know what I mean? Um, Australians are really bad at that, you know. 
we either do it when we're at the footy and we've won our game, uh, or we do it when you know ten minutes before closing time when we've we're so disinhibited by alcohol that we will sing. The rest of the time we're just we've got our teeth gritted and we're too embarrassed. You know we can't sing and we can't dance. And um, that was one thing being in church. You know I wasn't I wasn't in a serious dancing tradition or shaking tradition, uh, um, but we did sing a lot and um, and it was very aerobic as I recall. So I love your uh, your comment about singing. I was in South Africa a couple of weeks ago doing a race and on the start line, a group of uh, the runners just broke into song, swaying from side to side. And it just struck me that in South Africa, there's not singers and non-singers. There's just moments where everyone sings and moments where people don't. Uh, but that community spirit seems to uh, to embody your your novels um, both where people are enjoying it and when people are, are yearning for it you know I'm thinking mm. of uh, Jaxi and Shepherd Shepherd's hut kind of wanting to be part of part of a community um, uh, and uh, I was curious too the way in which your parents um, opened up the, the world of the arts. You've talked before about a visit to the National Gallery of Victoria as being sort of an important moment in your artistic flowering. Why was a visit to an art gallery important for a budding writer? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good that's a good question. I, I think um, we came you know we came from the rude mechanicals and it, it, my um, as as they were once called um, um, and it was it was a very you know the people I knew and I grew up with were very pragmatic and and very task oriented. Um, but my my parents, uh, my mum in particular, um, uh, was interested in what what uh, you know an economist were called uh, the intangibles. You know, <laughs> and um, uh, and I don't know. I think we we just we we showed up. We went to Melbourne. We crossed the Nullarbor, you know, in our 1967 Hillman Hunter um, station wagon, all five of us. And, um, yeah, the, the day we walked into the, the National Gallery was a was a big deal for me. And I, I think it was – sometimes I think it might have just been the scale of the of – the, of the sculptures, you know, the Henry Moore sculptures that I was seeing or the scale of the paintings or the – I think it was just the, the sense of – possibility that um was opened up when you see what people's minds did where their minds went and and where in 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 this case of sculpture um where people's minds took their hands and what was wrought you know and obviously in terms of painting as well you know, you know standing in front of a rembrandt and um just seeing how real um in a kind of dreamlike way um a man's hands could, could you know, could could make paint be on, on canvas, and so yeah, I think it was just that it was um, it was it was a sort of a open door onto the world of the imagination, and I I think um, that sense of possibility was important, and I think also it came at the right time for me as a as a ten year old just coming into the you know, it was before puberty, um, and it was the '60s. So there was this kind of sense of things changing. I could feel the sense of change happening around me, um, 
Uh, there was like you'd see people with long hair and flared jeans and strange-looking outfits, and you could see people um, sort of going against the the tide, the flow. And then, of course, you know, a few years later, we had a change of government, and people like me could go to university. And people like me, nobody, nobody I knew, and in my family had even finished high school, let alone go to go to university. So. I came of age, uh, and I think going to the going to the, the gallery was just ahead of this period of enormous confidence in Australian culture that I became. I, I became a kind of a, a passenger on that on that tide. There were things that things that have happened in my life that can only be really explained by the changes that came about during the during the Whitlam government. Previous to that, um, a life like mine was not not just unlikely, it was probably not possible to be a literary writer who stayed home in Australia on the wrong side of the wrong country in the wrong continent, on the wrong continent, in the wrong hemisphere. Um, it was just, it was just unthinkable. So, yeah, I think that surge of confidence and openness and um, I felt that we were given permission. Uh, when I was a teenager, we were given permission by our by our government and by our culture to have a go at things that previously we were um, discouraged from attempting. And so I'm, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to my culture for making my life possible. And it is that an interesting time where you've got uh, people like Jermaine Greer and Clive James going to live in uh, the UK because they feel as though Australia is too stifling. Um, you spend some time writing overseas, but most of your writing has been done here. And, and you talk, you've talked too in the past about the importance of Elizabeth Jolly and uh, mm. what she taught you at university. How did she shape your writing? Yeah, it was odd because um, she was a she was an English migrant, um, and she she'd come out as a you know as a well into her adulthood, but not very far into her career. Um, when she was teaching me in the seventies, she had only just been published um, for the first time. Um, so she was a and she was sort of generationally. I mean, obviously we were you know she was my parents' generation. So we didn't have that in common. So we so there was a there were a few barriers really. But she was also finding her way as a writer at the time. But she had been for a few years finding her way negotiating this culture. You know, um, she was from a very different um, background, and so so we were kind of, in a sense, fellow aliens. Oh, we were aliens for different for different <laughs> reasons. And um, she was she was also a very practical person, and um, and I think that's uh, that's what appealed to me about her. And she she had a kind of an air of professionalism. Um, not long before I met her, you know, and before she'd been published, you know, she was still she was cleaning houses, you know? and um, and she had been uh, a nurse and. Uh, and of course, you know, most of the time I knew Elizabeth. She was nursing her husband Leonard, um, uh, who was a librarian, very, very bright, fierce fella, um, but stricken with uh, arthritis. And uh, yeah, I, she, she was she was really interesting about um, just the practicalities of being a writer, uh, about being a professional. Um, so she was 
she was very much interested in aesthetics and interested in beauty and she and she came from this kind of generation um you know she loved you know German leader, she uh, she, uh, she loved um, romantic poetry, um, but she was very practical, and I think that was and I and I, I don't know what she saw in me. Um, I was I was very very young when I first met her. I think I was wow, eighteen, you know, and um, she was very patient with me, and um, she had a wicked sense of humour, and uh, yeah, we we got along really well we hardly ever had a crossword and um uh yeah i was very very fond of her and i, th I think um we i think we shared a kind of a sense of we recognized a kind of work ethic in each other and um whether that's a particularly protestant work ethic i don't really know but i think um we just knew what work was and also i i guess what i learned from elizabeth matched where I'd come from in the sense that I, I I had to I had to make my life and my aspirations I had to for my parents sake I had to I had to make what I was doing um, relatable I had to make what I was because it was very alien and strange to them you know they were very trusting um, you know they finally get somebody through high school they finally get someone into university um, and then they find out that I want to do something as pointless and, and impractical has <laughs> become a writer i.e you know take a vow of poverty um and uh but i needed in a, in a way that made sense to i could make my aspirations make sense to my parents i had to uh i had to essentially um make liter literature a trade i had to make art making a trade and and i don't regret that for a second because i in a way to, to, to prove to them what I was doing was worthwhile and um, I took a tradesman-like um, attitude to, to what I was doing and I think that didn't just help me um, to make sense of my life for my parents' sake, I think it gave me an enormous benefit of being industrious and it paid off in a, in a way that um, I don't know if my life had been... If, if I'd come from more advanced social background, I'm not sure if my life would have proceeded in quite the same way. Um, remember, so there's uh, something to prove, I suppose. On the question of uh, work ethic, I remember one of the um, Paris Review interviews with a famous writer, I've, I've forgotten which one, um, he or she was saying, you need to turn up at the desk every day and some days the muse flutters down and sits on your shoulder and you write like uh, nothing, no, there's no tomorrow and some days the muse doesn't come at all but the important thing is that uh, you don't have a day where the muse flutters down and, and you're not at the desk ready to go. Is, is that how it is for you? Do you have a, yeah. do you have a word target? Do you, are you feeling no. systematic or does it kind of ebb and flow? No, I, don't, I never have any metrics on it. The, the, the only metric that counts is that you show up. Right. So in that sense, uh, I, I show up to the site and I hope the truck shows up with some supplies. For how um, long? How many hours do you? Oh, look, it just... Um, uh, I usually do what it, what it takes uh, a, a, until, I, a, until I feel that I'm, um, that I'm going dry. But I, you know... Um, uh, I used to just work a. I used to work a work day, 
in the sense that I felt that I needed to work a work day like other people worked a work day. Mm. And, and that was... That's a lot of time of writing. Yeah, but I, um, you know, a lot of it's, a lot of it's sitting, you know, a, a lot of it's um, sitting and waiting, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of days and for many hours of the day, the truck doesn't show up. You're at the work site, but the truck doesn't show up. There's no supplies. <laughs> or you might have bricks, but you, have, you haven't got any cement. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, lot of sitting around, you know, whether it's just, you know, curse, cursing the transport system or <laughs> cursing the supply chain or uh, the architect or, or whoever. Um, you've, got a, you've got enough to make half of something, but not enough to make a whole something. So you, you just sit around and bitch. So I do a bit of that. But that's part of the process, I guess. I mean, I just... Um, but I have learnt as I've got older that, you know... And, and that I've, you know, I got past that thing of having to prove something that, that what I was doing, you know, that, I, that being in the trade of useless beauty was, was okay and I didn't have to convince myself or my parents um, or my culture anymore um, that what I was doing wasn't legitimate. Because, you know, there is, this, there is this kind of bewilderment that lots of people have about um, the arts that it's that it's impractical that it's illegitimate that it's uh, something airy fairy um, when it's just another form of labour and um, and hard work and that it it has its own form of productivity and has its, has its own payoff you know cu- cultural and economic but um, as I've got older I think um, I mean a bit like a footy player you learn as you, as you get older you learn to do more with less and I probably. I probably am wiser about time at the desk um, and I've learnt that sometimes the time I spend away from the desk is as productive as the time I spend at the desk. Because if, as anybody who's related to me um, in terms of you know, intimately, closely related to me knows that, you know, I'm always on the job, whether I like it or not, they can always tell by the look in my eye that part of me has drifted off and I'm solving, trying to solve some problem or I've thought of something um, or I'm worried about something. I remember having dinner with Les Murray once in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I he bet he did most of the talking. He did, and it was amazing. <laughs> and the thing, one of the, but one of the things he mentioned is that he'd been spending most of the afternoon trying to think of the best word to describe the colour of the river. Uh, so that was that was all he'd been wrestling with. Do you carry a notepad around to sort of mm, catch some of these ideas? No, I, I used to. I um, I'm bad at that kind of practical aspect um but yeah just to just to be in the presence of someone like les who who really was australia's bard um you know don't uh, don't you feel lucky to have lived at a time when les murray walked the earth you know um and you know the sum total of 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 his poetry you know in, in terms of yardage there's not there's not a lot of words there you know but it, you know, it 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 fill it it fills vast spaces. You know, those 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 few words just they'll travel. I still forever. send wedding at Berico to people who have just uh, j- j- just announced their engagement. So, um. uh, he he was mighty. He, he was mighty. I mean, he he he's probably. I suspect he may be the greatest Australian writer ever lived, um, and possibly ever will. Um, 
but uh, he, he, he was an interesting person, though. Um, anyway, I won't go. On oh, too terrible much about politics! Those. Beautiful words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, he was he was a contrarian. He was he was always interesting. He was he was never dull. Uh, even when he was wrong, he was interestingly wrong. Yes, yes, that's right. And I still love the tale of him driving around Australia when John Howard was trying to get him to draft a new preamble for the Constitution, mm. phoning Howard from uh, random payphones and uh, missing the prime, prime Minister by, by minutes and not bothering and then driving on to the next thing. It's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderfully Aussie tale. Yep. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I'm fascinated by in your career, Tim, is I sort of, I have this theory of creatives, or there's, it's not my theory, but it's one that a lot, a lot of economists subscribe to, of um, young innovators and older experimentalists. So Picasso does a lot of his uh, best work early on. He's driven by a big idea. Matisse is always tweaking and does does his better work later, later on. Um, Joyce's best work comes at, comes at a young age, single big, big idea. Um, Shakespeare Tends, and Dickens tends to come later on, driven by characters. Mm. Um, your uh, uh, enfant terrible, you managed to uh, uh, churn, churn out uh, a whole lot of books before you turn 30, uh, win a slew of, li- of literary awards. Probably Cloud Street is still your best-known best work. Um, but yet I find it harder to fit you into that theory because I think of Everything you've done is predominantly character-driven rather rather than plot-driven. Do you see any of yourself in the sort of uh, innovators versus experimentalists dichotomy? Do you think you're becoming more of an experimentalist as you as you're get, getting older? Uh, look, I, I don't even th- I, I probably don't even think in those terms to be to be honest. I'm. Um, uh, I. Because in a, in a way, you know, my stuff is really about geography, you know. Um, everything is based, as you say, I mean, the, I'm not very plot, interested in plots. Um, and I'm not really interested in, theme, you know, I don't even start with a theme or a, or some kind of political problem. or and I just start with the ecology. I start with... Um, uh, with the place, the geography, and the, the ecological logic at play, and the people come out of the land. Um, the one thing I have learned as as I've got older is that you know, the country needs people. The country needs its people, and uh, the people are formed by country. Um, and the kind of people that are in my books could only be uh, in the place that the, mm. the, 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 the story is set in. So they are part of the ecological logic, um, if, if you like, uh, or the ecological economy um, of, of the place. And all the problems and possibilities um, in their lives and in the story are essentially um, bound up in where they are. And um, so, so in, a, in a sense, um, they're all the same work they're all um and in a way they're all the same book in a in a sense it's a kind of patchwork of place um and the people who make up that place so i um so your whole canon is like a, a lot an enlarged version of the turning then <laughs> possibly yeah i mean because essentially what are we but a series of interrelated interconnected interdependent 
stories. No, oh, I love that. Um, and and you know, the older you get, the more you realise you're um, you're not repeating the past, but you're you're bumping into the warp and weft of it. You suddenly realise that someone else in your family or someone else in your uh, community has done something similar, and you've crossed over and you've you've crossed a stitch and. Um, and that's kind of interesting. You realise that you're just part of something bigger and there's a kind of humility that's forced upon you in realising that, that you're just you're another you're another story in the big in the big web. Um, and th- that makes that makes me feel good. It makes me feel like um, you know, that I'm 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 just a fish in a school that's so big I can't see the edges of the of the school of fish i can't see the i can't see the the who's out the front i can't see how far it goes back behind me but i know it goes back a long long way um and you know when i've when i've been on country with countrymen and women um i get a little sense of, of an echo i don't obviously i can't claim um, the same experience, but I, I, f- I, I kind of feel an echo of what they talk about when they talk about um, belonging, because you know you're in, you know you're in the school that goes back a long, long way. Um, and whether whether we're seeing that in terms of being, you know, part of a people or just part of being people, our species, we go back a long way. I, I just think about it. people were. People like us, sapiens, were here on this continent when Neanderthals were still in Europe. Um, and that just, I get goosebumps thinking about that. Um, so the school goes back a long way. And I, have, I hope it goes a long way ahead, because I know it goes a long way left to right and mm. up and down. It's a big body of human experience and to belong to that and to get some sense of connection to that i don't i think there's something sacred about that to the extent that you draw your experiences from geography i imagine that you might need to move around more than other writers i mean some writers quite like having a very simple life and so they can be as productive as possible but for you if you were to stick in the one spot Presumably, you'd eventually run out of geographic inspiration, right? You would have thought that, but I've more or less stayed in. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm in the time zone that I was born in. Um, I'm not quite in the postcode I was born in, but um, I've, you know, all but one of my books is set on the west coast of Western of Western Australia or South Coast in some instances, but at least everything's Western Australia. I haven't. You know, I guess the, I'm working in a in a range from the the Kimberley to the south coast of WA. Um, so out of thirty books, that's pretty much. That's that's pretty, a fair bit of movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, yeah not, it's not that. Know. But it's not it's not um, it's not global. I mean, I've been in all over the world. Not, it seems I've been in nearly every continent, I think. And um, uh, so I've had I've had kind of you know. A much broader range of um, opportunity and experience than um, people in my family um, were supposed to have, and yet I'm still 
um, I'm still a provincial. You know, I'm quite happy to be um, a provincial. I'm happy to, I'm happy to wear the smear of being regional. Um, it used to be a smear, and it, you know, in some circles, it still is. Um, but yeah, the place, the the place still is enough for me. I I I, I could. I'd be I'd be surprised if I it could exhaust what's what's out there in you know my end of the mm. of mm. the of the you know, wrong island in the wrong hemisphere. Yeah, you can leave describing Tasmanian rivers to uh, Richard Flanagan, and uh, <laughs> you can you can just you can describe the extraordinary beauty of the Western Australian coast. Uh, but you also do a remarkable job of capturing language, and you know much as. Mark Twain manages to capture a uniquely American voice. You capture so much of the Australian language. Uh, was that uh, did did that come hard at the beginning? And you know, Cloud Street is is actually quite a tricky novel for a non-Australian to read because they can't just read the passages out loud and think, oh, that's what they're saying. And and yet, funnily enough, I um, I wouldn't go a week without. Um somebody who was um, from a migrant background coming up to me and saying, thank you for Cloud Street. I came here as a migrant and I was bewildered and I didn't understand anything and I read Cloud Street and it was like my passport. It was like I I understood. Um, And uh, that's a triggering sound, isn't it? so and and I've I've I'm surprised by that and but delighted by it that somehow, um, you know, uh, uh, such such a dense word pudding like uh, Cloud Street might have been of some assistance uh, to someone for whom you know the the English would is, is a second language and 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 hyper Australian English which is you know which is sort of Cloud Street was just like strine on steroids um yes and and i just had fun with that i mean i was just making a lot of the colloquial words in it i'm just making up you know just for the <laughs> just for the fun of it you know for shits and giggles but uh i uh but i but i i found it um pro, I, I found it i kind of uh, sort of i think i wrote in I wrote in the voice that I've written in um, initially out of a kind of form of stubbornness, hmm. a refusal to submit. And I think I did that also um, with the assistance of the confidence that I talked about, the cultural confidence I talked about earlier. At a time, you know, I came of age at a time when Australian stories were being told in a, in a brazen new way. So the Australian new wave of movies, you know... I just I couldn't get enough of films like Sunday Too Far Away, and we our our voices, you know, our real voices were, uh, you know, the unvarnished because it hadn't been too long before that even on the ABC, you know, people didn't speak like people in the street, and um, so I kind of um, and then after a while I, I I settled into it and then I just enjoyed myself even even after it became you know even after. People in the arts, Australian arts world, got a bit more uh, anxious about um, not sounding cosmopolitan. We went from we went from um, being kind of uh, almost fake Brit, um, and we passed through our 
ochre stage into this sort of anxious cosmopolitanism um and i i just couldn't i couldn't embrace it you know because it just didn't feel genuine to me I, I didn't i didn't really resent anybody else uh wandering off uh in that direction but i just didn't i just, I just wasn't i didn't feel under any i just kind of wasn't going to buy into the cultural pressure that was around that because um, then you got into this sort of sense of placeless cosmopolitanism which just doesn't interest me at all um, mm. which essentially then every every work of art was essentially about a a problem not a place yes and not about yes. people there's a lot of violence in your books um, yeah you know, your father was a motorcycle cop, and I guess that sort of oral storytelling tradition you talk about before would have included a lot of stories of, of the family violence and the carnage on the roads. Uh, I think even of Bugalug's Bum Thief, which has a little uh, bit at the end about the, the boy who, uh, when they're all collecting collecting their bums, he gets spanked at home, and so he chooses a particularly hard bum so <laughs> the, uh, the spankings will stop. Uh, why do you think it is that the, those that, that kernel of violence keeps on showing up in your novels? Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I, I grew up in a family that had been shaped by um, economic distress um, and by two world wars. And for many p- members of my f- family, the, the older ones, the wars were the, were the dominant events in, in their life. Um, and between them, there was a depression. And, um, and so violence was essentially the economy uh, in which they um, swam, you know, and um, and it was shaping, um, and and so in in a sense, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I guess I I guess I must have imbibed some of that, and and the rest of it's about struggle you know and I, I felt a sense of violence um in the kind of class constraints that you know we were presented with um um as as kids and obviously i mean i've i've, I've grown up in um and spent a lot of my um a lot of my adult life in in regional areas particularly in small communities that were hyper masculine and violence is you know is is you know, dominates those. So, in a sense, there's um, it's almost inconceivable that you could tell a story in that world that didn't involve violence. Um, the the whether it's the the literal physical environment uh, violence that people um, inflict on each other, um, or the kind of emotional violence um, of words. I have to say, some of um, I. I was at university. I would have been eighteen or nineteen years old before I um, was shocked by the kind of violence of discourse that people would use against one another in a classroom or in a seminar or in a, a in a lecture theatre. I thought I, until that's because I'd grown up in a household where there was no violence and where violence wasn't tolerated. Um, and which is probably an odd thing to say, you know, when when people knew that my father was a cop, they 
they had a kind of a different attitude about him. They they feared him, you know, and they didn't understand he was a very gentle person. Um, but I I'd never I'd never so my my understanding of violence was kind of superficial. It was a, it was about physical violence. And when I went to university, I I started to see how people spoke to one another and the way that people strategized and used the f- forms of social violence against each other. And I was shocked. I mean, I think I was, for a while, in certain instances, I was just afraid. You know, when you, mm. when you, when you get into a space when, there's a, when a physical fight erupts, whether it's in a, a, a pub or on a, on a sporting field or something, and you feel the proximity of violence and you're either, you're either frozen in the, in the moment or you, just, you have this impulse to flee. Um, usually a combination of both, which generally leaves you frozen in the moment. But I felt that, you know, I felt that in, in the, I felt something like that, watching people be cruel to each other um, in ways that they thought were sophisticated and weren't violent. Um, and that's kind of self-deception that, that educated people had about um, about what was violent and what wasn't. So I guess, sorry, this is a very rambling answer, but I guess as I've grown older, I've realised all the forms of, of violence that we deploy um, are um, enmeshed in, in us as creatures and they are, they're very difficult to divest. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, but they're always... In a ghastly way, they're interesting. And it's interesting you talk about the different aspects of violence because one of the things it's been, well, I've been wondering, uh, I was chatting to a couple of young writers on Saturday night and they were saying, you know, uh, ask Tim about his, about how the world has changed since 1981 when an open swimmer won the Vogel Award. Uh, you know, that was in Australia where Gallipoli had just premiered, where Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister, mm. where a country practice had just made its debut, mm. where no one talked about being gay, let alone trans. And here you are more than four decades on still writing. So mm. how have you looked to, to sort of keep your writing fresh? To what extent do you think it needs to address the particular social questions of the age? Or to what extent do you just uh, still find yourself tapping into the same themes that uh, uh, a younger Tim Winton did? Well, of course, the geography is the same. Um, but the human geography has has changed. There's no there's no getting around that. Um, but that's 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 interesting, you know. Um, that's um, so you know the kinds of places and communities that I've written about um, uh, just by their nature tended to be. You know, not just dominated in in a masculine sense. They're hyper hyper masculine, um, and so the the women in those communities are more masculine, almost more hyper masculine than a lot of the men in other communities. Um, so you're you know you're at you're at one end of the spectrum. Um, but in terms of in terms of how those communities have changed in my lifetime, you know, there are people in those communities who weren't there um, in 1971, 1981, 1991, um, who were there now, and and you know, 
they're they're in the picture. They're part of the. Um, so you know some some of that has to bleed in. Otherwise, you're just not being honest about what's what's in front of you. Um, and frankly, um, the 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 ecology, um, the spaces themselves are now changing in ways that are beyond the kinds of things that you can easily describe in terms of interpersonal relationships because the world that we know is um, slipping away from us. If you know, in, in a sense, there's probably in the next 10 years, there's probably the only one subject and, and that's, that's what we're leaving to the next generation and the generation that comes. I mean, in a, in a sense, um, people will always write about adultery. They'll always write about um, feeling loneliness. They'll always f write about um, whether they f feel that they belong or not. Um, there'll always be the violence that people do to each other. But the fundamental question is the violence that we're doing to the earth and the violence that we're wreaking on those who come after us. And in, in a way, as I've, as I've aged and read more and thought more, um, and as I've become a grandfather, um, yeah, there's almost only one subject matter and that's how we negotiate um, what kind of ancestors we're about to become whether we're going to be good ancestors or whether we're going to be whether we're going to be the relatives that people disown i can't argue with you on the importance of of climate and and the the long future but i can't help thinking too how do you manage to avoid becoming a curmudgeon you know so the standard answer to this is you surround yourself with young people uh yeah, my uh, my older friends who are best at not becoming curmudgeonly are uh, university professors who are always surrounding themselves with uh, with students. But that's very hard as a, as a writer to surround yourself with, with young people and get their perspectives. How do you manage to, to ensure you stay fresh and relevant? Oh, look, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't think there's any point in trying to stay relevant um, because uh, you go chasing after rainbows uh, then, or uh, or you go chasing after sound bites. But um, and being a you know being a novelist, which is as a solitary gig, you are at real risk of being um, either in private or as a public persona a curmudgeon. Um, and um, so I, I I'm very aware of that I guess I've been lucky in the sense that for the last 25 years I've I have another life um, uh, as a as an activist as a conservation activist so in that sense I I I am I am propelled into the in a into a village I am I am conscripted um, into a, a a virtual and often literal village of um, fellow travellers and aspirants and adjutants and, and um, guerrillas um, and patriots and um, and that's been that's been 
an enormous pain in the ass, and it's been a great joy uh, simultaneously. I mean, it's been a burden, and it's you know, it's it's I think it's aged me um, <laughs> somewhat, you uh, know, in, in a way that I wouldn't have been if I just stayed in my room and kept to my lane. Um, but it's been great because you're you're in, you're you know you've, you're and unlike a university professor, the people that you're surrounded by, younger people, they aren't they aren't your they aren't they aren't supplicants or they aren't um at your mercy you know yes you're they're, they're your comrades you know and you learn an enormous amount from from young people and they like a they like a blood transfusion you know of of idealism and and optimism and urgency and freshness and if you like relevance i mean um so that's 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 been great to to have a that sense of comradeship and um, and you know to be taught by young people, and I think that's just the thing. If you you run the risk as an older person of of a, a associating only with people your own age, mm. um, and sadly that can often mean, um, particularly for men, that you're you know you're, you only associate with people your age and your gender, which is even worse. Um, so, so I think it's you know to be to be to be able to um, belong to a, a a community that's 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 not partisan, and I think that's been, you know, that's been my advantage to be a part of a, a movement that's, while it's very involved in politics, it's very concerned with politics. It's not um, uh, it's not tribal in that in that narrower political sense. Um, and to be at one purpose for the common good with all kinds of people. So I mean, I used to, we used to go to meetings, and there'd be, you know, you'd see the vehicles out the front. There'd be someone chained chained up their their push bike, um, and there'd be a, you know, an Audi, and then there'd be a tradies Ute, um, and you know, and a broken down VW Bug, you know, um, and the people in there were representative of those vehicles, of course. Um, and they were all they were all after the one thing it was just to um just to save a place or to do what they could for uh, a threatened species and and i think the you know the you know the the urgency of of you know the the extinction crisis and the climate emergency um that's bringing people together in unlikely alliances and um um in a way in an accelerated way in you know in i've been doing this for quite a while and there's a kind of a dif different atmosphere at play now um to be honest i am surprised that people aren't younger people in particular uh, are as restrained as they currently are i don't think that's going to last very long i think we are heading into a kind of a into a, a period at during which we could um we could be entering a period of chaos, um, and uh, I, I, I just think that at this at this moment um, we need a form of leadership in our in our culture and in our in our government, which um, can help um, which can help guide young people in particular into. Um, into ways of acting that aren't self 
self-destructive and um, yes, and productive ways. And productive, because I'm you know I'm surprised given given the levels of, of of anxiety and urgency around climate in particular and and and, uh, and biodiversity loss, um, you know that that people haven't completely lost their shit yet, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying, because um, uh, you know we've just endured a decade of 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 real desolation and terror, you know, of just seeing seeing opportunities lost, you know, and and knowing that there's there's metrics on this, you know, that, that it's not we're not um, this is not speculation. We know, the, the science is is clear, you know, and even the you know even the wonks at the UN are saying, you know, you have seven years, we're already in trouble. The very best we can hope for is um, to manage some serious trouble after outside this narrow parameters we're we're in you know we're in really dire circumstances and um and you know i have four grandkids and i you know just the uh, the world of immiseration that might wait for them if 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 my country doesn't play its part you know it terrifies me Tim, we're nearly uh, to the end of the time. Uh, let me throw a handful of final questions at you that I throw, ask all my guests. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? <sighs> Press on. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, old people are rubbish. When are you most happy? When I'm in the water. This may have the same answer. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I look into my children's faces and their children's faces. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I don't think that we should ever feel guilty about pleasure. Um, that's uh, Perhaps once upon a time I thought there were things that you should have to feel guilty about if they give you pleasure, but I can't think of any, but then I'm not very perverse. And which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, hard pressed here. Um, uh, it'd be it'd be an even heat between Jesus of Nazareth and William Blake. Tim Winton, thank you for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Yes, mate. I'm not sure about wisdom, but sharing, I'm happy to. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. We'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.